this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of the forensic advancement season, Just Science interviews Dr. Paul Speaker from West Virginia University about the jurisdictional return on investment for DNA databases. With the help of foresight, crime labs can have not only an emotional argument, but also an economical argument for testing all sexual assault kits. Just Science explores questions in this episode, such as, should labs test all sexual assault kits? Should labs prioritize by if it was a consent case? Does this data have more than just a societal impact? Stay tuned as Dr. Speaker leads us through how individualized crime lab DNA data can aid crime labs competing for scarce resources. This month, the FTCOE will be releasing a report written on Forensic DNA Unit Efficiency Improvement Program. This episode, as well as the report, will be available at ForensicCOE.org. Follow the FTCOE on Facebook and Twitter or sign up for the newsletter to be notified of these releases. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. And we're here this week in Atlanta in May at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting. We've been recording podcasts here with some of the uh, folks who are giving talks at the conference. We're actually doing our second podcast with Paul Speaker. Dr. Speaker is a member of the WVU, West Virginia University Finance Department, and has been working for now 10 years on building Foresight data, which now covers 139 lab systems, over uh, 200 laboratories, covering half the United States system, and six continents, and excluding Antarctica, at least for the time being. And the Foresight data has been enormously valuable with respect to understanding the value of forensic science and understanding the uh, cost-effectiveness of innovations in forensic science. We're going to be looking today at a very particular issue, and that is the jurisdictional return on investment for the DNA databasing, which is an issue that's been going on for a number of years now, as jurisdictions have grappled with the idea of what's the value of, of different levels of databasing and what is the connection between that and outcomes in the criminal justice system. Just to kind of set the stage for Paul, um, I'm going to quote from one of my favorite people in the field who has done enormous amounts for forensic science and the social science side, and that's Catherine Browning in her NIJ journal article on social science research on forensic science. And the, she says NIJ's newest research portfolios, but Catherine's actually been working on this stuff for quite a while now. And she concludes that paper by observing that resources are decreasing. We must keep learning how to be more efficient and using ever-evolving forensics technologies and examining the actual justice outcomes resulting from forensic evidence so that limited resources can be used wisely. And if there's anything that would be kind of like a foundation for Paul's work, I guess that would be it. Isn't that right? Yeah, that, I, that's really uh, one of the major points behind Project Foresight 
because we understood this. And particularly, if you think back 10 years ago, this was the start of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what is the reaction when the economy is suddenly in turmoil? You know, government budgets were going way down and things had to be cut. So this idea of trying to find how to do more with less is, is say, well, let's make this database decisions. Let's kind of find out what's going on here. What does it cost to do this? And in economics, we refer to something known as opportunity cost. And we all know this. We make these decisions all the time. If you do one thing, you can't do something else. You have to give something up. So unless you are independently wealthy, and if you are, please call me. I would, uh, I'd like to befriend you. But we have to make choices. And you really want to understand what those choices are and to be making very, very explicit choices. They're not always happy choices that you want to make, but they're realistic. I mean, that's the nature of economics. The reason we have it is that we have what is known as the economic problem. Very simply put, we have unlimited desires and we have limited resources. So how can you make choices? And, and that's a lot of what we do here with Project Foresight is to try to put that together. More importantly, Browning Water Quote suggests is you must convey that need for resources with legislative bodies. So whether it be a city council, you know, a county board, state legislature, or federal funds or grant funds, you're going to have to be able to interpret what it is that you do. And you're competing. You're competing not just with other members of the justice system. You're competing with clean water, with the arts at a national scale, with defense, with whatever it may be, with social services. And you better speak the language if you want to be able to compete well. Well, even with police cars. I know many, many crime laboratory directors will talk about that aspect of it. And it's interesting because it's both return on investment and a return on disinvestment because that's what happens when you have a recession or any kind of crisis that's going on. It's just like, okay, are we going to take the attitude of we're just going to keep on cutting back and seeing what sticks? Or are we going to invest because we see that there's a return? And crime laboratories, in order to be successful in that race, in order to do their job and fulfill their mission, need to be able to demonstrate what that ROI is. Yeah, and this is actually the first of several areas that we're going to be looking at. But, you know, of course, everybody always thinks about either the DNA database or DNA casework and what it brings back. And I'm quite fortunate of being able to partner with the Center of Excellence on this one to say, let's put this in terms, and not just very broad-based terms, but by jurisdiction. We would like every jurisdiction to be able to talk specifically at what their return on investment would be. To give you a little bit of perspective on this is, you know, return on investment is a really simple metric. It says, what are the net benefits that I'm getting? So you say, here's all my benefits over cost. What is the gain I got relative to the amount that I put in there? So it's a simple percentage. And you may look at your retirement account or look at something like that, what is your return? If we just isolated in the private sector the 30 companies on the Dow, so the Dow Jones Industrial Index, there are 30 companies. And the highest return on investment historically, at least over the last couple of years, is Apple. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows Apple Computer. Right. Well, their return on investment is about 28%. That's really good. Think of what you're getting out of a bank account, you know, is a very right. simple investment. Yeah. So I'll take that. So if anybody is getting 28% on their money on a consistent basis, I want to know them as well. So <laughs> that's really one of those good. People. So think of that 28% as kind of a baseline in here. Sure. And in areas that have been very successful in trying to demonstrate the value of what they do, 
One of the examples I talk about outside forensics is a system called PulseNet. And this is where the CDC has gotten together and put money in. Said, let's create a nationwide system, again, DNA work, but on foodborne illness. And is it worthwhile for us to do that? So very, very good study that was done at Ohio State. And when you take their expenditure numbers and their benefit numbers, what you find is, you know, better than Apple's 28%, a return on an investment of around 4,000%. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take a look at this and you see what it took to invest and what they're able to do is, so if we're looking like, you know, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of concern over lettuce. Right. And what they can do is very quickly through the system identify that it's the same bacteria in this instance and that, and you can find the source much, much faster. So the return in terms of illness is avoided, deaths avoided, I mean, if it gets to, to be that serious, we're able to measure how much quicker we're able to do this because of the system. Now, if you're arguing for funding the system and you say, well, sure, you can put a dollar over in this other area of potential expenditure that maybe brings back a 50% rate of return. But we're talking, put your money here, 4000 So we've attempted to do the same kind of thing where we can break it down to the jurisdictional level where they can talk about what they're doing. And fortunately, there's a couple great recent publications that have measured the benefit side. What Foresight does is it offers the expenditure side. I mean, a, a sure. true expenditure side, fully loaded expenditure where we can provide those kinds of metrics. I guess this is really the first time that I know of that Foresight's been used to look at the DNA database and capacity improvement issue. And so there have been attempts, though, over the last 10 to 15 years to kind of examine this whole idea of what has been the impact because there has been an enormous investment in DNA, undeniably. And, and there's also undeniably an enormous amount more capability in crime laboratories today than there was in 2002 or 2003. It was kind of where I'd put a baseline. And the other thing is, of course, the database itself, the National Index, is way bigger now. It's a completely different beast when it was a few hundred thousand samples in the early 2000s, and now it's in the 8 to 10 million range, something like that, right? So there have been attempts to actually kind of look at this return issue before, and you refer to some of the recent papers on that. You want to talk about that? Yeah, two, well, three very, very important papers. One is in progress, but uh, the first of these is a 2017 publication by uh, Jennifer Doliak at the University of Virginia. And fascinating work. And it appears in one of the leading journals in economics. And what she's able to do is to take the data, in particular looking at states where they have changed what offender profiles go in to the database and is able to measure the benefits. Let me give you the punchline on this, is basically she's able to determine that it's about $20,000 benefit to society for each sample, not each hit, but each sample that goes into the database. Wow, even today, even with the, the base that, that exists, that's, at, that's, that's incredible. At, that's just at the margin what it's, what it's offering. So you're wow. getting to this point. I mean, it's this incredible benefit that we have on this. What we do is we try to combine. This is the first time I've come close to cursing on the, on the, on the show, <laughs> because that's a holy cow kind holy of Holy cow kind of moment, yeah. <laughs> uh, holy moly, or whatever holy <laughs> yeah, exactly, you want to throw yeah. in there. 
So mm. it's really an amazing piece of research mm -hmm. she's done. The, the second paper is a working paper that Professor Doliak is working on with a couple others looking in Europe right now with some additional social factors tossed in there. The third piece is not so much on the DNA database but related to this. And it's an uh, online publication and journal of forensic sciences that was released in March 2018. Professor Doliak, who is a graduate of Stanford, and this is two Stanford uh, researchers, Wang and Weir, and it's, it's fascinating, but it's looking in particular at the crisis with sexual assault kits. And this was the concentration that we wanted to be able to get to with the center is to say, well, let's really take a look at this because this is another current crisis situation. And so we take a look at what uh, Wang and Weir have, and again, great detail with respect to the benefits side to be able to do that. And we're trying to combine with what we have on the cost side from the individual laboratory. And so you'll find tremendous things for the average laboratory and we can even point to the one with perfect economies of scale to say you can get this done the cheapest. The benefits are the same. Yeah. And if you can get it done even less expensively, then the return on investment even higher. But even for the very small laboratory that's doing a little bit, perhaps at a very high cost, you know, minimums are well over 700% rates of return on just the, the most costly of these. That, you want to get your money towards this and dealing with the backlog and however big that is. So for those that have seen HBO's documentary, I Am Evidence, mm -hmm. where you know, they try to, to come at least give a, a good sense on the size of it, 200,000, 200,000 plus, how do we deal with this? Well, Wang and Weir in their paper, they ask those questions, should we test everything? And the answer is yes, we should test everything. Should we prioritize? on if it is a stranger assault versus somebody who you know, you're familiar with. Right, a consent case, basically. Yeah, and so even with somebody who's claimed it was consensual, the uh, survivor saying, well, no, it was not, uh, he said, she said, you know, how many serial rapists are you going to find in that? And their answer is, yes, you test these. You may, because of timing, prioritize some of those as to what you're going to be coming after. But yes, test everything. And so what we've provided in this part of our study is just to be able to come back to each laboratory to be able to say, here is your return on investment. You know, when you want to be able to argue for the resources, to be able to say, well, if you're looking at where do we put our public dollars, if my return on investment is 700% or 4,000% or 10,000%, depending on what your size is, it's an effective argument to use with budgeting authorities who are going to hear this from all sectors of public funding. Sure. And so how do I compare how I prioritize beyond just the emotional argument? And it is a strong emotional argument. I, mean, I, I don't deny that at all. But can I give an additional armament oh, in yeah. the battle to be able to give that? And that's what we're attempting to do with foresight is to say, here's the reality of what's going on, here's the science behind it, and we can individualize that. Absolutely. I think having the combination of the emotional argument, but also being able to, to give kind of that 
underlying, it isn't just rational, but it's also kind of like an economic argument as well, is extraordinarily powerful, the combination is. Those are extraordinary figures. So let's tease them apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing is, is that the benefits are broader than the costs, right? Because you're talking about benefits that are societal benefits as yes. much as it is anything else. Yeah, you find some incredible numbers in the Wang and Wien paper. Okay. So Wang and Wien, when they go through, they point out something very, very important. And you also see this in some of Jen Doliak's work, is with sexual assault kits in particular, the testing of those has amongst the highest deterrence effects. Mm -hmm. If it's known that these are going to be tested, we're seeing a significant decline in attacks. Mm -hmm. As, you know, it's pretty damning evidence on, on from Now, that. are they linking that to police reports, or are they linking that to other kinds of data? How are they measuring the deterrence effect? Well, it, it, it's certainly through uh, reports on that, you know, because the estimates are on the unreported. So you're seeing fewer of this. But what they also point out is we're going to see more reports. Right. And, and that's the interesting part of this is that when it's known that action is being taken, uh, that people will be believed, when you look at some of Professor Campbell's work from Michigan State, of course. and just talking about the physiology of what goes on, that's still one of my favorite sessions that I've attended to really be able to talk about the release of various hormones and to be able to explain, mm -hmm. you know, fight versus flight versus freeze. Mm -hmm. And to say, look, this is, this is not a choice. This is, sure. this is your body and your brain going into survival mode and telling things. And, and again, I, I was pleased to see that she appears on that HBO documentary sure. because I can't get enough of her presentations. There's, there's just, yeah. this is the clear physiology. This is what is happening. One of my great frustrations thus far, we are going to get Rebecca Campbell on Just Science and get her uh, talking because she has an enormous amount of value in this area. I will refer folks, though, to one other podcast that we've done in this area, which is the one with Chris Krebs on campus sexual assault, where he talks about some of these issues, about the linkage between how cases are handled Yes. and how the effects are on reporting and things yeah. of that nature. Very important, and I uh, hope people will pick that up as well, because these are really important. When I heard Professor Campbell speak the first time, and when I had my turn to get up to speak about my topic, which was related, but I was pleased to talk about my own university and how it has responded to Title IX. And this was coming, you know, we are a, a Big 12 institution, and it was coming in the wake of the... Uh, Pepper Hamilton report on Baylor. And here you had all these outrageous claims coming out year after year after year and reports for Title IX of like nothing happening. And we had seen a dramatic increase in reporting just the first two weeks of the semester. And I said, this was not an indictment at our university. In fact, it was a praise. It's not that there was more activity. There was much greater comfort, a better environment mm -hmm. for the actual reporting. And this is, you know, Wang and Wien point this out, that this is, we're going to see some increases in this, that there is a dynamics involved. And that's one of the other aspects that we look at here is in looking at what happens when you reduce turnaround time. Mm -hmm. So that you don't have this big backlog, you don't have this big wait time, that activity is being taken, there is another economic concept that we've been able to bring to bear, and that is this notion of elasticities. Right. So 
in here, it's you know, the price elasticity of demand, which says we all understand this law of demand. This is what Walmart does. If you lower the price, people are going to buy more. Right. The question is how much more? Is it enough to justify the price increase? So uh, price elasticity predicts what that's going to happen. Well, here in the case of forensic sciences, the laboratories, for the most part, aren't charging for services. This is coming out of public funding, and that the policing bodies or the DA or prosecutors, whoever is submitting evidence, they're not necessarily charged for that evidence, but their indirect charge is wait time. Mm -hmm. What's your turnaround time? So we've used the foresight data for this predictive model to say what's going to go on. So if you were to reduce your turnaround time by 1%, we anticipate the demand for services to go up. But the question is by how much? And what we have found is, at least in our historic data, submissions for casework is going up by more than 1%. Mm -hmm. So that means your backlog isn't going away. So what Wang and Wien are, are referring to is we're seeing that that's happening. But not only will there be more case submission, there's going to be more evidence, more items submitted for sure. every case. And that looked like it's historically goes up by about 4% for that 1% decline. And the laboratory is going to be examining more samples out of all those items. So it both within particular cases and handling the new cases. And that's going up by nearly 3% historically sure. with that 1% decline. So, and the number of reports that the lab is submitting going up by about 1.6%. So we're looking at all these phenomena currently and this is one of the things I tease with our friends at, at NIJ about that calling it a backlog reduction program was a no-win situation <laughs> and referring to it as capacity enhancement was exactly what was going on. Sure. So we're getting some of the same questions now with the enormity of the backlog of sexual assault kits and legislators asking the right questions. What will it take to get rid of the backlog? And the answer is you won't get rid of the backlog. You will be able to reduce it. But as you reduce it, you're going to get greater reporting. And greater reporting is a good thing. This for, for people who are victimized and the survivors of sexual assault or other crimes sure. that you have, to know that the action is going to be taken, that it's uh, definitive, uh, that's working through, all of this is, is a good thing. And this is what we're trying to help our laboratories, help policymakers to say, anticipate what these needs are going to be. And this is where the foresight data has really provided both interesting from our perspective, but I also find very rewarding kinds of results. That is fascinating. You, you might imagine that there'll be a future time in which the system will have been saturated, right? Where there won't be cases that would uh, reinforce the turnaround time in that way. So that eventually you would be able to do a backlog reduction. Yeah, I, I, you'll get to a steady state. And then it'll be more of a steady state. What can the court system handle? Or what can you handle when you begin to adjudicate things, whether it's, you know, please or whatever, you know, at what volume does this not become the bottleneck? And, you know, a system flow that's at least reasonable, that uh, action is being taken in a reasonable uh, period of time, something that we're able to handle. And it's trying to find what that is and work towards that. Is any of the data showing that there's a jurisdiction or a set of jurisdictions out there where that is happening? Is there anybody who is 
getting to the point where they're at a steady state, or is that just, in the United States at least, probably not happening? I don't know. It certainly is happening, where you can find uh, where they're able to get to that. What I don't have is the evidence on the court system, and is that creating a backlog in another level of the system? We've not looked at it. I just don't have the data for that. But I can certainly see laboratories that have achieved something like that. We've had in our project a couple instances where the laboratories have been able to track the use of their reports, or at least the downloading of their reports. And the use of backlog as being a 30-day metric is just an arbitrary number. Mm -hmm. And so just as an ad hoc example, one of our laboratories found that they were really pushing to get a 30-day decision on this to basically have no backlog. But what they discovered is that the average report was being taken down 45 days. And they thought, well, why are we killing ourselves to something that the system can't handle beyond this? And they retargeted to 45. And that seemed to bring a nice balance with that. So there are things that you can look at, but it's having all of the data what goes on beyond the laboratory itself. And, and I don't have that data. Of course. And the idea of the efficiency of the court system is still kind of a contradiction in terms. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can say that one out loud. I come from a family of attorneys, so anything okay. that I have to tease the, uh, the others in my family, I'll take. Let's take a look at the cost side a little bit. So you're, you're pulling the cost side out in terms of different kinds of, of, of costs because it's very different between doing a rape kit versus doing other kinds of biological evidence that might come out sure. of, a, uh, of, of, a, of a case versus doing a reference sample. And, and so how are you dividing that out and looking at that analysis? Yeah, so we, part of that was coming in, in what we're finding in terms of the cost of the average sample coming out of a laboratory and comparing to those. And it compares very favorably to what you would have in analyzing sexual assault kit. Mm -hmm. So we don't jump too much detail from that average since, you know, what we found in, in our sample groups is we were getting that as one of the best indicators overall. Mm -hmm. So that made it fairly convenient to look in there. The problem we get with a lot of the other measurements that people have had where they've gone in to say, well, we're going to put the stopwatch on you. Right. And we're going to measure this, 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 and, and that, which is interesting as a way to be able to go, but it gives you a very small marginal measure, and we're more inclined to be able to go with the overall average measure to talk a large scale, to talk about the overhead of the laboratory, making sure that that gets measured in, to talk about all the capital expenditures, not just the measurable consumables, but be able to look at theft and waste, spillage, any of those kinds of things that would happen. Because you have the foresight data, you're actually looking at the entire budget of the crime yeah. laboratory and then relating that to what's going on at an individual evidence sample yeah. level. Yeah, and we so don't put the stopwatch on the analyst as to when they're thinking about it. Right. So, and that's time that is spent towards us. I'm, I'm thinking about this case. I'm talking about this, or I'm in my office writing reports on what we've got going on of that or sure. all of the entirety of how a time is spent and we're allocating all of that in support of those activities or even if you're doing research in mm -hmm. general how do you allocate that resource towards the actual uh, end product it's an all-inclusive measure that we have that picks up everything uh, mm -hmm. that we're able to get well that's really amazing i mean that's an in incredible piece of data and um, i'm as i'm sure you're aware uh, we also work on the sexual assault kit initiative and it definitely has become a watchword to all of the uh, jurisdictions involved in Saki that if you have kids that have been unanalyzed, it's time to get that going. <laughs> yeah. 
And unfortunately, there's still an awful lot of jurisdictions out there that have not been able to take advantage of the, of the Saki program and really be able to, to tackle this issue. This is powerful data to back up continued work in that area. You know, historically, you've had uh, jurisdictions that said, well, we have the mandate, it's just unfunded. Again, by going that additional step to be able to say, here's what the ROI is on this is just one more piece of evidence in your toolkit to, to argue for the appropriate funding. Mm -hmm. This is what you're going to get out of it. You know, when Wang and Ween in their paper, they talk about how many additional rapes down the road have been prevented. Mm -hmm. And prevented, one, in terms of situations where you've caught somebody. Sure. And the other with the deterrence effect, and you see this with Jen Doliak's work as well, is rather significant here that this true threat of being caught is preventing a lot. So any of these increases to the database have really a, a very, very powerful effect, certainly in this arena. Mm -hmm. Maybe not as much so on property crime or even other violent crimes, but it, it has the biggest impact when it comes to sexual assault. Well, we'll definitely point people to the three papers or the two papers plus the one when it comes out, the third when it comes out. Now, you're presenting your ROI work here at ASCLAD. Are, are, will people be able to access it other ways, too? Are you going to be publishing this or putting out any reports on this topic? We put this in as, as part of the proceedings mm -hmm. issue from the conference, so they should be able to access to that. We are working on the uh, finalized paper for submission uh, in a peer-reviewed journal to be able to get that up. So hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, you know, all of the details of the work will be available. Well, we can't wait to see all that, and uh, certainly appreciate this wonderful, wonderful look at it here on the podcast, and thank you so much, Paul. You're now tied. You're, I think you're a three-timer podcast uh, on the Just Science podcast, so we've had a couple other folks be three-timers, but uh, it's excellent, excellent work, and we really appreciate your contribution to the community. Well, uh, I like those on Saturday Night Live. When I hit five, I'll expect a smoking jacket to, be able to come along with us. <laughs> That's right, thank yeah. You, well, uh, thank you. And thank you to the listeners for listening in to Just Science today and hearing what uh, Paul Speaker has to say. As you know, he's one of many great leaders in forensic science who've been a part of Just Science. And please give us some reviews on uh, your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends and colleagues to listen into Just Science. And thank you so much for listening today. Next week on Just Science, we will have Dr. David Christensen on the podcast to discuss psychological survival in a violent career. The majority of these interviews were recorded at the 2018 ASCLAD Annual Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia. If you have an interesting case and would like to be a guest on our next season, which will be recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at ForensicsCOE.org forward slash Just Science Podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm -hmm.